When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Yo! Welcome into the House of L podcast. I'm Lawrence Holmes. Thanks so much for listening to today's episode. It's a lot of good episodes. Make sure that when you're done with this one, I know that Dan is the reason that you clicked on to this one, but make sure you check out some of the recent episodes, whether it's this or Sports Adjacent or me talking about the Bulls. We appreciate your support. In all endeavors. I got to admit, man, Dan Weederer has been one of the people that I have wanted to sit down with since he got into town. Like, I, I've, when he started covering the team, it was towards the tail end of me covering the team. So it was fun to kind of compare notes, and I would look forward to seeing him at training camp in Bourbon A to kind of pick his brain about what it is that he was seeing, what the Bears looked like as an organization to him and Rich Campbell because they were they had clear eyes. Like, both of those guys had clear eyes on they weren't walking into this thing with any real preconceived notions. So it was good to always get their feedback. And since then, I've just enjoyed his coverage of the Bears. Dan is done some of the real heavy lifting and deep diving onto issues that matter. And I appreciate that he's not just there farming sound bites, that he is really working hard to be investigative in his beat reporting. And that that takes some skill, it takes some guts, because we we do live in a, a place now where the relationship between media and team can be strained. And throughout this conversation, you'll hear Dan and I actually talk about that on how to do journalism when you understand that sometimes it has to be adversarial. And sometimes you have to dig deeper to get to the truth. And the preconceived notions that people who run teams have about the role of media. So I, I was really happy to, to kind of talk with him about that. We have very similar opinions when it comes to how to better serve the public by sometimes having an adversarial relationship with a team or with a player. It's not the goal. But the goal is to try and and get people the truth and try to get them interesting stories about the team. And and we discussed that. The other thing, and, and I think that you'll find it interesting, is I'm always fascinated by people who write books. 
and 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 Dan goes into painstaking detail on the book he wrote about North Carolina and North Carolina winning the national championship. It's called Blue Streak, the highs and lows behind the scenes, hijinks of a national champion. That's Dan Weeder's book. And he talked about that and what it what it took to kind of put a book together. And the way he describes covering Tobacco Road and college basketball is really, really awesome. So I wanted to share that information. And I wanted to really go in-depth with him on how to do it. And he was available and fun and interesting, as, as I thought he would be inside this conversation. Go buy his book. Like I, especially if you're – that's the other part of this. As an Illini fan, that North Carolina championship that he wrote about, uh, you'll find it interesting. And that's kind of the cool part is that he's a graduate of the University of Illinois. So he was covering his story about being an Illini fan while covering that national championship game is really good. All of it's good. You're going to enjoy the whole entire conversation. But we start off, I recorded this before I got on a plane. So Dan and I had figured out a couple times that we could get together, and I moved my flight back up because Herbie, his last day at the score, I wanted to make sure that I had planned to stay through the Thursday before Herbie's last day and then said, you know what, I just want to make sure that I'm there. So I flew back late Wednesday night and did both shows Thursday and Friday. Dan and I were talking like he uh, we interviewed before I packed up the Airbnb and bounced to the airport. It was great. So we start our discussion with us both talking about how much we love being out in the desert. And like me, he talks about how the desert changes him. You're going to love this episode. This is Dan Weeder and I chopping it up on House of L. Arizona is my place of Zen. I don't know what it is, but every time I go out there, I feel like I just get transported to a place where I'm very relaxed and I'm not a very relaxed person. And so being able to have that is great. Sedona, I've only been there. I went with my wife before we had kids and just the scenery there, man, that puts you, you feel like you're in a sci-fi movie. There's something about the red rocks that is really calming and we're very similar. I'm the same way. Like I'm very, I'm a different person when I'm here. Like it's, yes. it's a very laid back vibe. And this time I didn't, I've never spent a lot of time in downtown Phoenix. I love it. I stayed in, in the Coronado neighborhood this time. Okay. And it was, I'll never go back to Scottsdale. Like I'll never go back. <laughs> sure. Like I'll, I'll never, I'll never go back to party land. I'm, I'm here in the art scene now and I really dig it. That's cool. I haven't spent a lot of time in downtown Phoenix at all. I just know that like you get me a full day in Arizona Listen, if I, my ideal day would be get up early, hike to the top of Camelback, come down, do something during the day and make sure that by like 3.45, 4 o'clock, there's a margarita in my hand and have, maybe have a few of those. And then that relaxation goes to a different level. And you're just like, man, like I need to stay here. Yeah. Yeah. And what's cool is, is that since they don't do the time change thing, like the sun's been setting here like 6.30. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's a game changer, man. It's a game changer. Uh, there's so many places that I could start with you, but I... Okay, what's it like to c cover 
big time college basketball. Listen, that I could take that 175 different ways. I will tell you what I tell a lot of people that ask me about that chapter in my life. I went down to Tobacco Road for seven years of my life. Uh, 2004-05 season was my first year on the beat down there last until 2011. So seven seasons down there covering not just one program, but three and a half, I say. I covered Duke, North Carolina, NC State, and Wake Forest when they were good, which was about half the time that I was down there. If it wasn't for salary, if it wasn't for upward mobility, that was 1000% my dream job. It really was. It's not to denigrate any of the jobs I've had since because both of them since have been terrific and opened doors and taken me to places I never would have thought. But to be on Tobacco Road covering college basketball with the programs that I got to cover, second to none. I mean, it's, it's like a daily seminar in learning about leadership, learning about what builds successful programs that can sustain themselves, which is relevant to what I cover now with the Chicago Bears who can't sustain anything. And you compare sort of the procedures and the way things roll in programs that work long-term with programs that don't work, right? And constantly are reinventing themselves. Lawrence, I just remember, like I I went down there in the middle of the 405 season. And I remember going to my, like it was like the second weekend I was down there and I'm I'm walking into the Joel Coliseum in Winston-Salem for, it was like, number two, North Carolina versus number three, Wake Forest. It's Chris Paul versus Raymond Felton. And like just literally walking through the tunnel toward press row, hearing the band and just feeling like this almost out-of-body experience, like, holy shit, you know, this is, this is, this is it right here. This is it. And then to do that for seven years, to be in those environments, right? Again, when I say I didn't just cover one program, you're you're talking about covering big games, you know, twice a, a week, most of the winter, right? From, from, from January through March. And then, oh, by the way, you're going to jump on the bandwagon in the NCAA tournament and ride that as far as it's going to take you. And when you compare that to the number of big games that I've covered in nine seasons covering the bears, you go, Whoa, that's just, it's just different, right? When you're, when you're just around that big game atmosphere. And like I said, at the outset, just being able to learn about programs and team building and leadership and all those things, I, I can't tell you how transformative it was for me individually. And certainly in my career. What do you think you took from it culturally? Because that's different. Like, being a college reporter is different. Being a college basketball reporter is different. Tobacco Road is a whole different thing. So for you going there, living there, being a part (laughs) of of the area, what was kind of the biggest culture shock for you? Well, Well, so I'll take that in two different directions. The first direction being the coolest part for me was being a completely objective outsider dropped into this landscape in tobacco road right everybody thinks you have biases i would get emails voicemails all the things that you get from from audience members saying oh it's ridiculous how much of a unc homer you are and then the next day i can't believe how much uh you know duke kool-aid you've been drinking and you're like like this is great it goes back and forth because i truly have zero attachment to any of these schools and nothing in this place and so to be there and witness that experience where everybody is living together, right? And, and, and they all think the other program is dirty and their program is the example and vice versa and all those things. And to be just an absolutely neutral, objective observer in that environment was awesome. It was just really cool to be able to just know that you go in with no preconceived notions. Now, I will say this, because I, I think I've referenced this with you previously and certainly with other people, that when I went down there, I hated 
Coach K and Duke, right? Like just just from the perception you had growing up, where it was just this hoity-toity program, and and the the coach was somebody who was holier than thou, and and you know always yelling at officials. To walk out of there seven years later with Coach K being this this person in my life that that sort of changed the way I view things because I had a completely different impression of them after I left. And I tell people this all the time because I got to the chance to experience it, right? I got to experience what his players and coaches went through with him to understand why their admiration for him was so high to understand that the media portrayal oftentimes was a caricature, right? Mm. Particularly nationally, right? You get, you get this small snapshot, truly the most proud I've ever been of a story I've done. I did a three-part profile on coach K the year after they won the 2010 national championship. And it was going towards him passing Dean Smith and Bobby Knight for the all-time wins record. Right. And so the, the, the really cool project on multiple levels, because number one, you're talking about a guy who was already very well accomplished. And then he's going the last two rungs on that ladder to get to the top of the all time victories list is his chief rival. Right. For so many years and Dean Smith and his mentor. And you say, wait a second, that's not an accident. Right. To be around those two people, one as a rival, one as a mentor for that long. And then to you yourself rise to that level. That's not an accident. Right. And it, and it, and it makes you sort of understand the value of absorbing the experiences of the people that are around you because everybody's got something to teach you right and it's really cool and then i say the other part is just to have my notions and preconceived notions of who coach k and the duke program were challenged and changed and ultimately reversed because of the experiences i had reporting on them of interacting with them it just truly taught me the you know to, to make sure that you're not painting that caricature right to make mm -hmm. sure you're not painting with a broad brush to make sure you're not taking these easy roads of painting things in black and white when there's so much nuance. You know this as well as anyone. That we can, in our profession, fall victim to making something seem something that it isn't, right? And there's so much more nuance and gray and color in between the lines. And so for me, like that part of the experience was really, really cool because the other part of that, I went down to Las Vegas for a week. Coach K was at that point in his career coaching the, the national team still. And to then experience the experience of those, those guys, you know, a, a Lamar Odom, a Jason Kidd, talking about their experiences with this guy and why they truly believe that he brought that national program back to where it was and was able to connect not just with college kids, but with guys who had been to the mountaintop in the NBA. You say, all right, there's something here about connection and the way you connect with people and the way you lead that always just left a, a really profound impression on me, as you can probably tell. Yeah, all of us try to check our biases at the door when it comes to covering. Some of it's going to creep in. I, I wonder, was your being an outsider a bit of an advantage of you seeing the entire mosaic versus walking in having grown up being a Duke fan or a North Carolina State fan or whatever? I think 100%. I really do. I think 100% that it, it was just fresh eyes, right? It was fresh eyes on something. And then I could challenge those people that called me or emailed me on, on, on hey, why do you think that I'm biased, right? Point it out. And, th and then I will point out the, the person on the opposite side of the fence who's yelling the same things at me. And, and we can have that discussion, right? And try to get to a place that makes you realize that I'm just seeing this with unattached eyes. And I understand as a fan, why you see things a certain way. You know, I mean, like all of us, when we, when we go into that fan mindset, we become seven-year-old kids again, right? Logic doesn't apply. We want the best. We, 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 you know, overlook the blemishes really quickly. And when you are just sort of this outsider, like I was in that environment, 
it was just, I, I, again, it was just really cool to have that experience and to understand that, okay, like I can just use my powers of observation and challenge myself to challenge those observations to make sure that I'm not just falling into traps of, of thinking that it, something is one way and I'm going to, you know, portray it as one way because that's how I felt it was, but being open to having that change of mind and, and, and being able to, to, you know, kind of mold and, and evolve with your thoughts and opinion as you go. How do you think you gained respect from Coach K with your coverage? I, I think two things probably resonated with him. I think number one was uh, the ability to ask good questions, right? I think that's something I learned over time because Coach K wasn't afraid to dress you down in a press conference if you asked a bad question. We've seen examples of it, right? And, and he's the type of person that if he does dress you down, it's going to be on Sports Center, right? That night, it's going to become the thing. And so you had to sit row one, row two, row three, wherever you were sitting, and you had to really thoughtfully think what you were going to ask so that you didn't step on one of those minds in the minefield and embarrass yourself, right? And so it taught me the value of not only having good questions, but being able to almost rehearse them and ask them in a way that resonates and gets to the bottom of what you're ultimately trying to ask and connects with the person that you're trying to ask them to. Right. And so I think that connection built up over time. I mean, the first four or five times you sit in a press conference with coach K you're intimidated, right? You're, you're like, man, I don't want to screw up. I don't want to ask something wrong. I don't want to ask something silly. I don't want to ask something basic. And it just makes you raise your level. I'll give you a, another side example. We'll come back to this. I, I thought Jay Cutler was similar in that regard. He and was. I actually really appreciated Jay long-term in my experiences with him in not suffering fools and not tolerating bad questions. And, and, and I used to talk about this with Rich Campbell all the time. We'd say, you know, like Jay is challenging you to be better at your job, right? That's all he's doing, right? Like he'll roll his eyes, he'll, he'll blow you off. But most of the time it was justified when he, when he sort of scoffed at something because it was either a good question asked poorly or just a bad question. And, and so it's like, okay, let's not screw up here. Right. And let's make sure we, we ask good questions because usually if you ask Jay a good question, he'd give you a great, thoughtful, introspective response. It's right? funny. So it's there. funny how that, because I covered the front end of Jay as a bear. Like I was still on the beat for the first three seasons of Jay as a bear. And then you guys got like, you came in 13. Is that well, when you came yeah, in? The last, yeah. We were there for his last four years. So the last half C came in on the back end of it. And I tell people the exact same thing. I never had a problem with Jay as a reporter. And, and part of it was because I realized pretty early on that, one, he didn't want to be at the podium. Two, if he was going to be at the podium, he was looking at it as an opportunity to, to play around a little bit. Like, this, this was an opportunity for him to show some personality, to challenge the people that were in the room. And I never got, like, a one-word answer from him. And I remember distinctly, there was, a, I'm not going to say who the reporter was, but there was a national reporter that kind of parachuted in to cover the game. It was a rough game for Jay. This guy asked a question that, it wasn't a terrible question, but it definitely had an angle that Jay saw a mile away. Like, he saw it coming. And he didn't answer it the way that the reporter thought he was going to answer it. So the reporter says to me, he goes, you deal with this bullshit all the time. And I go, no, I don't deal with this bullshit all the time. And, and when I ask my questions of Jay, you'll see. And then I, I asked Jay a question, and Jay gave me a really good answer. And this reporter was shocked. He was shocked. I was like, you guys see Jay in a, in a lot of weird, like, clips. But 
honestly, if you look at the 15 minutes, like the totality right. of a 15-minute session, you could actually learn a lot of football from him. Now, I, wouldn't- I was just going to say that, like, the X's and O's talks with him, when you could talk about, hey, you know, what is it about Harrison Smith? And then he'd light up, right? And for three minutes, he'd give you an answer that told you about the way the Vikings used him schematically and the way that it challenges all those things, right? And, and you say, okay, so this is the way to get him to light up. Now let's work off that, right? Right. And I, I think that he he ended up learning, like, who were the people that were going to ask him. Like, I remember one time I was just looking. I forget what, what team it was, but they were playing a lot of two-man. And, you know, I'd been doing video work and talking with people about two-man. And I'm like, look, you know, this is the type of defense where Jay could run because, you know, what's happening with the corners and they're turning and running. And I asked him about it, and he went into great detail explaining the things that he would look for when he would leave the pocket versus not leaving the pocket. It's probably like a 90-second answer of him explaining, yes, you're right, it does open up opportunities, but I got to be selective with those opportunities, and here's why. It's stuff like that where there's such a value to reporters being in the room and and – I, I don't know. It's it's I, I am concerned. This is what we, I was saying to you before we even started recording. Like I I'm concerned that with the NFL in particular, there's a comfort that can come from the fact that these things happened on Zoom, and I think the NFL and the Bears in particular did a good job of figuring it out, but it didn't always leave for the opportunity of a follow up. Now you guys on the beat have done a great job. Of, of letting the Bears know, hey, leave me up because I might want to follow up on a question. So how hard is this where you're trying to do the reporting without the moments in the locker room where you can pull someone aside and you don't have your recorder going? And, and, and what the, where we are right now, how difficult is it to do the job the way you want? Yeah, I think it's honestly pretty scary because if, if we never get back in a locker room, which is not a crazy thing to think about, it's not. We're, going to, we're going to lose a lot, right? You're going to lose connection. You're going to lose the ability to have honest conversations without a tape reporter running with a guy that can help inform you and illuminate some of the things that are going on that you might not want on the record, right? That you can't say at a podium setting. I thought that the 2020 season was what it was, right? We all had to make do during a very unorthodox time and, and, and make sure things happen. But it was four days into training camp when we were back with in-person interviewing at Hellas Hall where I said, oh my God, this is so different. Even though we're not in the locker room, just the ability to be in person and have that back and forth and that give and take and just the human experience, really, Lawrence. I mean, it's, it's like making eye contact with a guy that over Zoom it doesn't happen when you're in a room full of Zoom, right? You can do it one-on-one over Zoom like we're doing here, but when it's 15 and one, people are, you know, fiddling with their the books. It's just not the same. It's just not the same environment. At the same time, you're also not able to interject, right? You may be fourth in the queue with your hand up and you're on mute and you can't stop a guy when he gives an answer that maybe even the person that asked the question doesn't have the, the follow-up for. You can't say, well, wait a second, go back to that for a second because I need to ask that. And it just became so formulaic. It was just, you knew you were only going to get one, maybe two questions a day, and you had to be very strategic about which one you wanted to ask. There was no flow to any of, of the interactions, and it just you just lost a lot as a reporter. That's just on the Zoom part. Now you talk about taking away the locker room, and it's all those things we talked about, just the ability to have sincere, genuine relationships with the people you cover, which is so instrumental 
to doing the job well, to do, doing the job right, to providing balance and, and insight and, and information, right? Like that, it's really, really, I think it terrifies a lot of us as journalists to think of an experience where all we are doing now is podium sessions, right? Podium sessions are better than Zoom, but if all we're doing is podium sessions, you're never gonna get to know anybody you cover on a level that's meaningful enough to get you deeper into stories the way you need to get deeper into stories. I can't figure out if the powers that be are insidious or ignorant when it comes to what the job is of the reporter in the room. There, like, there's some of it feels like Pollyanna that they think that everyone is there for to be a cheerleader. Like, even when Eberflus gets introduced and he's like, "Oh, no applause." You're in front of a room of of independent reporters. So no, this isn't a pep rally. This isn't, you know, Fayetteville, Arkansas. You're not walking in and, and that be the thing. I and I can't figure out if these people expect there to be some reverence to them just because, or if they truly don't get what the relationship is supposed to be between them and the media. What do you think? I think it's case by case, right? I think it's the experiences of, of people from where they've come from and what they've experienced previously. And this is a different market. I mean, it's just so much bigger here and there's so much more of a presence, even in contrast to my experience covering the Vikings in Minnesota. I remember the, the first two, three months on the beat in 2013 being like, man, there are a lot of damn TV cameras in here, right? I mean, you're talking about two, five, seven, nine, 32, you know, occasionally NFL network, occasionally 32. And so when you would go into a locker room scrum, you had to be prepared for maybe you're trying to do a one-on-one or a two-on-one with someone in the corner locker room. Well, next thing you know, here they come, right? And here comes the horde. And now all of a sudden this whole interaction and exchange has changed, right? And you've got to learn how to work that environment. And it was, that was a shock coming back to Chicago. I'm from here. I lived this, you know, growing up forever. And then, you know, seven years in North Carolina, two in Minnesota and coming back into that environment was like, holy cow, like I've got to use a different playbook here, right? And I've got to be different in the way I, I, I work around here. I think t- to your question about just the, the reverence that's expected from certain people, sometimes that never changed. Sometimes with a first-time coach over a year or two, they start to get a little more. First-time GM, they start to get a little more. And you just have to hope that you have people around you in those roles that help you understand what the dynamics are, right? And, and how... How do we play this game and do this dance and, and, and waltz this waltz in a way that, that makes sense for everyone involved, right? It doesn't always have to be a friction-filled, combative relationship. And when you look at the, the, the organizations, the schools, the places that do it really well, you say, man, there's a formula there that, that, that people who understand what this really is know how to do that skillfully. Now, look, I'm, I'm, I'm talking around things here, but you, you can read between the lines and understand your experience is the same as mine when it comes to dealing with the Chicago Bears and how too often that waltz is, you know, like a fifth grade square dance. It's just all over the place. It's not, <laughs> it's not, it's not working. You're stepping on each other. You're running into each. It just, it, it just needs to be smoother. Right. And when it gets smooth and when it's in that lane, everybody benefits the team, the reporters, the fans by extension, and it's not that hard. And I, I always say that if, if I ever had an opportunity in a, in a future life to, to try to help someone somewhere correct some of these flaws, I would love to do it because I've seen it done at the highest levels. I've seen it done in certain places at the lowest levels. And you just say, man, there, there's a way to improve. It, it's so crazy too, because 
the, the way that I view it, and I view it now from the role of being a talk show host, but even when I was just a beat reporter, people, it's better for everyone when teams do well. And, yeah. and I don't know if teams understand at the highest level that if we have a preference, the preference is that the team is good. If the team isn't good, then the team needs to be interesting. And if they're not interesting, God help us all. If they're, if they're, if they're losing and they're uninteresting. But they seem to think that the antagonistic aspect of our job means that we're looking for their downfall, that we're literally rooting against them. And it's so far from the truth how do you reconcile that as someone who I think does the job really well and ask great questions? How do you, how do you reconcile the fact that these teams will look at you as the enemy? And that's not really like, it's, it's, it's not that like, it's not that black and white as far as what our relationship is with the people that we cover. I, I have an anecdote to share with you in a minute, but I also think there's just this, this nature of this thing where it's changed since you and I both got in the business where now teams are competing for their own content, right? And I can tell you in the last, you know, five, seven, eight years, I've been hesitant to talk to a media relations person about an idea that I have that I want to pitch. And it's a story I want to do with either a player or a coach or a group of players or a group of coaches. And you're like, man, I don't know if I want to tell them the extent of my idea, because they may want to steal it for their own programming, right? And so now you're you're also trying to compete, right, with, with mm-hmm. the in-house operations that obviously have greater access than you are going to have because they are the in-house operations. And you say, man, how do I how do I do this in a way where I can do the story? They don't feel like we're stealing it from them. How do we do this, right? And that's become a wrestling match that that isn't easy. The anecdote I was going to share with you is I had a, a conversation, a really good conversation with Ryan Pace in the winter of 2020, pre-pandemic, r- right after the off-season began. And if you remember the piece from 2019, late in the year that Rich Campbell and I did about the drafting of Mitch Trubisky and the process of everything that went into that. Right? Really, A really incredible piece of sports journalism. I could talk about that piece for a while just because of what rich meant to me as a teammate right and we can get into that at a later point and just the ability when you have when you when you find that groove with someone and you're able to report something out the way we did that story but the the fact of the matter was ryan who i had a really good relationship with over his seven years here i i feel that way anyway i think he does as well uh you know he took exception to some things in that piece which naturally you would think he would right (laughs) i mean it is the biggest blemish on his resume. And there were errors within that process that were illuminated through our story that came to light. And, and this is probably February, 2020. And, and, and he, he had made the comment to me, we're on a phone call and he, he said, listen, I get it in your business. Negativity sells. And I said, hold on, I'm not going to let you go any further with that. Because I said, Ryan, if you remember the preseason in August, we're in Indianapolis at Lucas oil stadium. And I'm literally sitting with you in a press box there pitching you a story. Ryan had told me multiple times in in private conversations that his drive to and from Soldier Field on game days was almost like a religious experience. It was this moment for him to drive from the North Shore all the way down to Soldier Field, Sheridan Road, up to Lakeshore Drive, and just reflect on the opportunity he had been given, this unbelievable city that he'd been been given, and to to oversee the Chicago Bears, right? And and every time he made sure to, to cherish that drive. 
And I had sat with him in this press box. In if you remember the summer of 2019, everyone believed the Bears were a Super Bowl front runner. That is right? correct. We came out of that Bears 100 celebration with the alumni, the the, the fan base, the the internal operation, all believing the same thing. Thursday Thursday night make- football to open up the season was supposed to be the coronation of the Bears have arrived. Here we go, 2019, the most memorable season in you know, decades in Chicago, everyone was preparing for that. And I sat with him in August and I said, listen, at some point this year, I want to selectively pick a date on the calendar. We can pick a date where you think you guys are going to win. Right. And I would like to experience that drive with you just to see what it's like to and from the stadium. Right. And we can write the story about why this, this drive means something to you. Right. Fast forward five months later, the bears finished eight and eight. The season was a disaster. The Mitch Trubisky stuff went down the drain. Everyone saw the direction things were headed. And I said, listen, I would have much rather written that story riding in your SUV with you up and down Lakeshore Drive than written the story, 10 chapters, 9,000 words about why the selection of Mr. Trubisky was a failure. It would have been much more enjoyable to me to give Chicago a story where they would have been like, hell yeah, let's go, right? Like that, that stuff is fun. So this, this misconception that the media thrives on negativity it bothers me. Some media does. There's no question. You've been around people that they would much rather have the scandal and the controversy and the negativity and be able to tear people down. I don't think that, I think that's one of those instances where it's painting with too broad a brush to say the media roots for failure. Because I can tell you those seven years I spent in North Carolina, three of those seasons ended with the team I covered winning a national championship. I got a book on my bookshelf right above me that I wrote (laughs) about the 2009 North Carolina Tar Heels team, which is one of the crowning achievements in my career. I wasn't rooting for that team to fail. It was fun as hell to chronicle how they got to the mountaintop, right? And what the secrets behind that climb were. There is no way you can convince me that the media is rooting for failure, as you said. I could literally show them the analytics on it. Yes, on big days when they have a press conference, for example. Like, my ratings are sky high. Like, I know that. But... In a season where the team's good, my ratings are sky high every day right. because there's an interest in the team because the team is good. The, the, the idea of the, the negative being something that is positive for what we do only works up to a point. And then there's a point where the fan doesn't care. Like Then, then the fan is like, oh, well, whatever. Um, right. you know, I'll, I'll catch up with this team in the offseason season if they end up making some moves and that's, that's verified. Like those, those numbers can't be disputed. And, and I think about how much fun it is. It's more fun to cover a team. That's good. In 18, we, we had so much like doing the stuff at NBC, doing the stuff at the score. Hell man, you saw it driving in that Thursday night as the season was beginning we were broadcasting from Grant Park. Right. Like, you know what I'm saying? Like, Look, it- I, I'm, I'm literally breaking out in goosebumps because I'm remembering two things. I'm remembering, like, like Rich Campbell and I walked through Grant Park for like two hours. We got to the game really early that day just to experience that electricity, right? And, and you're like, this city is alive, man. Like, look, look how cool this is. Bears 100, another event just like that. You pull up that first night on Friday night for the opening ceremonies, and there are lines three miles down river road to I get saw into the it. convention center right and you, and you and you're getting those goosebumps and you're going this city is alive and i've said this to people i said 2018 and into 2019 before it went down the way this place came alive was 
unique for me because I haven't, I, that's the only winning season I've covered in nine years. It's the only time the Bears finished with a winning record. And I've said, can you imagine if they strung this together for three consecutive years, right? Imagine what the Chiefs have gone through. Imagine what the Packers have gone through. Imagine how fun that would be to be a part of that ride. Well, listen, the Bears haven't had three consecutive winning seasons since 1988, right? We were little kids back then and, and, and haven't experienced it since. And so it's crazy. And Zach Zaidman, mutual friend of ours, used to always say, you should have been there for 06, yep. right? You should have been there for 06. And I say, man, it sounds awesome. I would love to experience something like that. It sounds really freaking awesome from the people that were part of that. Cause that also included parts of 05, right? Where they were good. Yes. Surprisingly and, good, and you saw it kind playoffs. of build up and you could see it crescendo. I'll give you a, a great story from that. Stuff like this doesn't really happen. Now, you know, I, I feel like I did a good job of building some relationships at that time when I was covering the team, which wasn't always easy being a radio reporter. And I feel, I think I feel the same way about Zach that you feel about Rich when you talk about like having a teammate. And yeah. we used to, the thing that you're talking about where the horde comes, there would be days where Zach would go, I need you to go over there. Create, create the horde? Yep. I need you to go create the hordes. I need 10 minutes with it. I was like, not a problem. And vice versa, we would do that. I was doing a show the night before, the Friday before the NFC Championship game. And I was talking about, like, how great it would be. Like, the idea of the Bears going to the Super Bowl. Like, how yeah. great it would be if they could get back there. I look up on the hotline, and my producer's doing like this. And he's like, what's going on? Like, it's Lance Briggs. He's literally driving, listening to the show, and just wanted to talk about it. Like, yeah. talk about the idea of the yeah. Bears going to the Super Bowl. And it was, it was like 15 minutes of just awesomeness. And right. that's what it was like. Like, everyone kind of was in it. Like, him, Charles Tillman, like, all these guys. And they were really fun, like, personalities as yeah. well. And that's what the Bears don't get is, man, it doesn't take much for the Hope Bucket of Bears fans to get refilled. It doesn't take much. And if you can give that to them, they're, they're so ravenous. Like, they're so into it. I remember seeing as Negi walks in on that Thursday night, he's wearing the hat. He, he yeah. looks like yeah. George Hallis. And yeah. I remember people being like, Bears by a million, right. you know? And then, of course, right. they scored, what, three points? It's three like, points. oh, no, yeah. like, this is this is going to be terrible. But, yeah, it's – it's gratifying when a team is good and it's fun to cover them. And it's all the different people that you will then get to meet inside of an organization when a team is good and all the other stories that are available versus, well, now we're just on a countdown to this player being benched or this coach being fired or this right. GM being fired. That's no fun for anybody. Lawrence, I, I reference this, this book above me that I wrote about the, the UNC championship season in 2009. I basically started writing that book the, the day after they won the national title. So it's championship Monday. I had notes, obviously, and, and records tremendous cooperation from the, the basketball program at UNC over the next three or four months to get me one-on-ones with everyone that I wanted on that team for a lengthy period of time, right? Those 25-minute to 45-minute to one-hour one-on-ones with whoever it might have been created a relationship that then the next season takes the coverage to a new level because you have a connection with all of these people in the program. And it's not just one person that you can go to. Now you've got seven or eight go-tos 
in the program, coaches, players, support staff that can help fill you in on things that are happening that can take you to a deeper level in your coverage of the team. And you say, God damn, is this addicting, right? Like this is cool to be able to have this vibe. That doesn't happen. Like when you go six and 11, you don't spend the first three months of the off season doing one-on-ones with every person in the program, no. right? Like asking them, <laughs> Hey, let's, 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 let's revisit the lowest of the low moments. Tell me, tell me the worst story of the worst loss of the season, right? You can do that with the best moment of the best win of the season. Right. And you can go through it. You don't get to do that. And so you, you, yeah, like people ask me all the time, do you miss covering college basketball? My first answer is I think so, but I think I miss covering winning more because it's just something that allows you to feel the rush and it allows you to, to, to help be part of the electricity that comes alive, particularly again, in a place like this, where it's second to none when it comes alive. It is second to none in the city of Chicago when, when, when things elevate like that. And so hopefully sometime before I hang it up, the Bears will have winning seasons three years in a row. Let me go back to you covering college. At Highland, we're all about celebrating little wins and little ways to innovate digital processes. There's no customer pain point too small for us to help with. Maybe that's why more than half of the Fortune 100 looks to Highland to connect their content and data, improve processes, and turn little efficiencies into big wins for their customers and clients. Highland, intelligent content solutions for innovators everywhere at highland.com. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member? For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. Basketball for yeah. a minute. How weird was it for you to cover 05? <laughs> weird and or awesome. You're asking this because I'm an alum of the University of Illinois. Correct? Yeah, and let me just tell you. So, you know, I'm I, at this point, I'm hosting sporadically at the score. I'm mostly reporting. And Mitch says to me, he goes, I want you to go down to Champagne." This is the night of the championship. And I had two, like, really weird connections with that Illinois team because, one, they played the Elite Eight game on my alma mater's home floor and the most insane basketball game ever. And then (laughs) I parachute into Champaign doing basically, like, the the man-on-the-street stories of the national championship game, and it was amazing. Like It was a lot of fun to cover. For you, what was it like? So quick sidebar, that Elite Eight game that you referenced, my dad literally, when he would have low moments in his life, would go to his computer, pull up the YouTube video of the highlights of the comeback against Arizona and say that without fail, it always brought him back into a moment of just like, whoa. That's, right? like that's awesome. That's awesome, right? And so, so you know, I miss my dad every day. And that, that's one of the things I, I, I remember about him. For 05 for me was super cool because you're on kind of parallel tracks. You're still able to follow your alma mater having this ridiculous season undefeated until the the final day of the the regular season, right? I mean, literally pursuing an undefeated season. Then they lose to Ohio State on the final Sunday of the regular season, sweep through the Big Ten tournament. So you're still able to follow that understanding that this other team you're covering, UNC, 
is just every bit as good, right? And it's like this collision course that's heading down this path. And for whatever reason, that collision course kept going down the brackets until we got to St. Louis, right? I remember watching that Elite Eight game from a hotel room in Syracuse where the regional was for, for where North Carolina was playing. And, and I still have buddies that were reporters with me down there that, that laugh about this like triple bed jump that I did in the hotel room we were staying in <laughs> when, this, when, when, when Darren Williams hit, hit the three to tie it, right? And you're just, just unbridled excitement on that. So then they get to St. Louis for the final four. And I remember like crossing my fingers being like, please let UNC play the second semifinal, right? Like, please let UNC play the second semifinal. Lo and behold, they get the second semifinal against Michigan State, which means what? It means that for the first semifinal, I don't have any work to do. And I've got a front row seat on press row for Illinois against Louisville. I say this embarrassedly because it's one of the, probably like the three most unprofessional moments of my career, but there's a, 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 a dunk in that semifinal game for Illinois. Roger Powell misses a three-pointer and dunks his own mystery pointer, comes out of nowhere and puts us down. And I'm, you know, just enjoying this game, completely emotions inside. I came out of my chair on that went, Oh, <laughs> you know, and you come out of your chair and you sit back down and you look at the people <laughs> next to you and, and you quickly try to get, your, get yourself resettled. You're like, all right, all right, we're, we're back. You know, we're back and we get it. Then to, to see those two teams play on championship Monday, Lawrence in a game, here's one thing that pissed me off. People in North Carolina still talk about that championship game as if they ran away from Illinois in that championship game. And that pisses me off because the game was tied at 70 inside of two minutes in that game. And Illinois had come back, they were down double digits and they came back. It, it, it was a, a, a screwy night in that regard because I've got a lot of work to do that night and I'm trying to track this thing. And then obviously Carolina wins it. And I had developed enough of an attachment to that team's story at that point that it wasn't, there weren't any conflicting emotions. It was like, whoever wins this game, it's going to be pretty cool for, right? Illinois is either going to be 38 and one and, and cutting down the nets or this North Carolina team that, you know, a few years earlier had hit rock bottom with Matt Doherty as their coach had been resurrected by Roy Williams and took this group of, you know, the, the senior class there, Jackie Manuel, Juwan Williams, Melvin Scott, I'll never forget, you know, they were eight and 20 as freshmen, right? Wow. And then they stood on that stage and got to watch one shining moment. And you're like, would I have preferred my alma mater to win that game? Probably, but good for these three, right? And good for this program for picking itself up and getting it back to where it belongs. Experiencing that was, I mean, that's my first season on the beat, right? You say, all right, let's do this for a little more, right? Let's try this again a few times. How young were you when you started writing the book? How, when I started for the 09 season? Yeah. So that that's were you even 30? I was 32. Okay. Yeah. What's the what's the book writing process like and how how does it challenge you in a different way than writing on deadline? Well, here's where it challenges me to this day. Is it, it is it it sparked something in me that that is sometimes hard to control, which is a problem when you're working for a newspaper and you want to write every story as if it's a book, right? Like I obviously have a reputation amongst my peers and editors of the paper of writing too long, right? Totally justified. And a lot of times I do write too long and I need help reining it in a little bit, but that experience writing that book taught me that like you can, like every story that means anything has, it's like the ocean, right? I mean, you can always go deeper. You can, 
you can go deeper until the, the tank, the scuba tanks runs out, right? And you got to get back to the surface. And so it becomes sort of this addiction to, to try to get as deep below the surface as you can with everything you do. And that's something that the book writing process triggered in me. If I, people ask me all the time, if you were able to do anything you wanted, right, independent of finances, benefits, whatever it is. And I say it would, it would be probably, you know, writing books or finding a way to make my way into the documentary world with similar topics, right? Because I love that exploration of being able to stick on one topic and just go as deep as time allows, right? And so that's one thing that the, the book writing process fueled in me. It's a challenge because you have to have a lot of discipline. Now, listen, I've been approached a couple of different times to write books since I've had kids. I, I know what the experience is like. Can't do it right now. At this chapter in my life, there's too much time commitment, too much discipline involved, too many nights writing that book where I was up till three in the morning, didn't have to be up the next morning, right? Like you could sleep till you didn't have to get a kid out the door to school at eight o'clock and you didn't have to juggle a baseball practice, a basketball practice, those types of things. And so uh, that'll wait, that'll wait till a next phase of my life. But, but certainly there were parts of that process that were just fun. And I, I just go back to the, the connections that it allowed you to foster, right? And be able to, to go sit in Roy Williams's office for an hour and 15 minutes and be like, okay, I could talk to you for five hours. Now I've got to selectively choose which chapters I really want your voice in, right? Like, where are we going to spend our time focusing? I can't have you in all 32 chapters. I got to pick four and stay there with you, right? And get as much as I can out of you on this and hope that these other people in the program can help me fill in the other 28 chapters. So which ones are you going to be most valuable to? That part of the process, Lawrence, I think is like dumping out a 2000 piece puzzle on your dining room table and trying to figure out how you're going to do this whole thing. How satisfying is it when you get the copy of the book that's going to be published and yeah, it's your I mean, name right there on it? Cool as hell, right? And I had a really good designer in, uh, in North Carolina who designed the cover for me and I love it. It's, it's pretty simple. It's basic. Um, we'll give people the name here. It's Blue Streak. <laughs> um, and, and it's, uh, I read it exactly. The highs, lows, and behind the scenes hijinks of a national champion. Um, had a Chicago kid, Bobby Frazier, who's now the head varsity basketball coach at Brother Rice High School, who was a, a tremendous storyteller for me. He wrote the foreword for the book. And we connected over being from Chicago when he first got to, to Chapel Hill. And he was the guy that would say, you know, like, go out to the mall, sit down at Champs for an hour and say, hey, you need to ask Wayne Ellington about this. When you sit down with Ty Lawson, you need to ask him about this. When you get together with Tyler Hansbrough, these are the five things you have to ask him. Unbelievable reference point, you know, to have that stuff. And then to see it all come together as you asked, you get the copy, you look at it and you say, okay, cool. Like that was really a rewarding process to pour yourself into and then, and then see the end result. That's awesome. That is really, really excellent. You brought up Rich Campbell. Why do you think yeah. you guys were, cause you guys did, you guys did def definitely have like a Batman Superman thing going on on the beat. So, so what was it like to, to work with Rich and why do you think you guys clicked? Cause you were coming from different places. It wasn't like, you know, he was covering Washington, right. And you were covering yep. Minnesota. Yep. So, so when you guys got together on the beat, how did you figure out to your, your working relationship? Here, here's the wild part about it, Lawrence. It, it, it's rare that this would ever happen. Two positions came open at the same time to cover the Chicago Bears for the Chicago Tribune, right? I mean, like, when is that ever going to happen, right? And, and so what happens in the summer of 2013 is Mike Kellams, the sports editor of the Tribune at the time, has to go out and fill these two positions at a time when NFL training camps are going on. 
So none of us could actually come to Chicago to interview for this job, right? And so I remember vividly going to this restaurant in Mankato, Minnesota to meet Mike Callums for my, you know, this is my second dream job, right? The, the, the second step on a dream job location where you're like, I'm going tonight to interview for a job at the Chicago Tribune. And I am coming from five hours of training camp at Mankato, sweating in shorts in a golf shirt. You, you always pictured you walk in the Tribune Tower, suit tie, I'm going to come <laughs> in, I'm going to make an impression. And I'm just, you know, burnt red, you know, completely dehydrated, look like hell, smell even worse, right? And like, hi, I'm Dan Weeder. you know, can I meet you, right? So Mike Callums is doing these interviews. I think he maybe did eight to 10 of these around the country over a week, flying, Washington to see Rich, you know, some other places. I won't name people that may not want to be named, but he's got to put this together, right? And so then what it turns into, Lawrence, is Rich and I starting on the same day. And not only starting on the same day, but starting on the Tuesday of week one, right? Wow. Like, so you don't have a lot of opportunity to get yourself up to speed here, right? Like you're like, all right, we're hitting the ground running. It's Mark Trestman's first season. Let's learn everything we can about this. And then we just got to go, right? Like first day on the job, Mike's like, practice tomorrow is at Hell's Hall. Here's your schedule. He, Jim Crispin's the guy you got to talk to to get in the building. Oh, by the way, we need by Friday at five o'clock, I need your Sunday, you know, enterprise piece for the Sunday sports section. You're like, shit, I've never had a conversation with any person on this team. And now by Sunday, anyway, long story short, I, I, it was just, something that happened magically where our connection was going to be our connection regardless right rich came from washington i came here and it just it's just one of those things where it fell into place and it clicked and for uh i guess was it six seasons that we were together it was just it, a friendship and a working relationship grew into this this huge thing where there was no holds barred right we'd get pissed at each other put it aside the next morning always working in the same direction, always pulling the, the same thing. And it just, it, when it's rare, right. And I don't take it for granted. I didn't take it for granted a single day at how well that thing worked because you're not going to find it all the time. And, and, and so, you know, it just meant a lot to me because it helped me elevate my game. It helped him elevate his game, it helped us elevate our game. And then we got to experiment like with the podcast and, and, and going off on our own and doing some of that stuff just really helps you broaden what you can do as a reporter, as a journalist, and then just, you know, create a lifelong friendship along the way. Was it hard when he walked away from the business? Oh, hell yeah. Yeah. Hell yeah. Because now you've got to try to recreate that, right? Or, or you got to fill voids in different ways. Yeah. There's no question. He, he, you should have him on sometime and ask him, how hard was it on Dan when you walked away from the business? Because <laughs> I, I let him hear about it for several months, right? And like, I was trying to get through my own stuff, but like, it was like, yeah, dude, I get it. You're sad that I'm gone, but I'm gone. So like deal with it. I'm like, all right, I'll get through it. Don't worry about it. I'm good. <laughs> yes, for sure. But I mean, you, know, you build a relationship like that. It's, it's a really hard thing to... To, to then see that person. And luckily, it seems like Rich is doing really well and it's it was well, the right think, choice for him. Think of this, part of this is like, you know, and, and this this really crystallized for me when, when our buddy Jeff Dickerson passed away here. You realize, even though you're in the confines of work, you realize how many road trips you take with people you like, right? Like the normal nine to five average Joe doesn't get to go on like, 10 to 15 road trips per year with, with buddies of theirs, you know, going out to dinners and, and experiencing different cities and doing all that stuff. And you compound that over a length of time and you go, man, like, you know, with JD, you, you think about, it, you'd be like, man, we had some awesome times, right? Like that at the time, I didn't realize how awesome they were because it was just part of 
the work grind, right? And, and then you're like, but man, like that stuff adds up and you've experienced it and you, and you look back and you go, man, that's some of the, the better times in my life that had nothing to do with work, but had everything to do with work, right? A hundred percent. Like with JD, he was my travel partner. Like for the time that I was covering the team from what, oh, three to 10, uh, he was, he was, that was us. Like we would travel together. And when the Bears played, it's my favorite like JD story because when the Bears played in New Orleans, actually at Baton Rouge, it was right after Katrina. So back then, I don't know what the policy is now, but back then, you could stay at the team hotel. Like the Bears would, they would facilitate you getting a room with a rate at the team right. hotel. Obviously, after Katrina, moving the game from New Orleans, which was still struggling to get upright, and Baton Rouge. The hotel accommodations were not easily done. So yeah. I think it was Jim. I think it was Jim who was like, look, I can get you guys in there, but you're going to have to share a room. And so I was like, cool, because J.D. had interned for me over yeah. at the score. So we've, no we've known each other since, what, 99? Um, and, and so we were like, okay, great. And we, it, was, it was like camp. It was, it was like two adults at camp, and we stayed up late, and we probably had too much to drink, and we hung out, and just, it was so much fun. And then the next morning, we, we went, because we're also co competitors, you know? Right. He's working for 1,000, I'm working for the score. Right. We're doing our stories, we're doing our work, and it was so great, because the next trip after that was Tampa, and... <laughs> The Bears had said, Jim had said, look, since you guys were nice enough to share, because not everyone was, he's like, we're going to take care of you. The yeah. next trip, they were at the Grand Hyatt <laughs> in Tampa, and we got to the floor where you need the extra key. Yeah. And they put us in the room with, like, 24-hour, like, concierge <laughs> service and all that. And JD's like, man, if the, I would have known – that we were getting this, we could have shared rooms every week. Like I'm totally fine with that, man. But he, that dude, that dude was uh, just the best, man. I, 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 I showed up to the wake. I was on the air during the funeral, and it was it's hard for everyone, right? And and I, yeah. I was really I wanted to thank you because I, I feel like you guys did a really incredible job of of taking care of him. Uh, towards the end I mean I've heard the stories I've talked to a bunch of people about it and I wanted to thank you for taking care of him because he while he was he wasn't public about all the the, uh, the things he was going through and I know that there were moments where he needed help and yeah. it seems like everyone there was willing to help him and it's not surprising because of how willing he was to help anyone else. Well, that's what I was going to say to you is it, 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 that just speaks to who Jeff was, right? Like you knew that Jeff was going to drop anything <laughs> that, that he needed to drop to help you whenever he needed. I, I, I've known Jeff since college, 1997 at University of Illinois. And so I had the privilege kind of, of you know, knowing his fraternity brothers and the circle he ran with in college, then obviously getting to know him as part of the Bears beat family and then getting to know him as part of the 1000 family. And so you see these three separate sort of wings of his life 
with people that all feel the same way about him, right? And then you realize that there's like three to five to seven to 10 other wings of his life where people all feel the same way about him. You're like, dude, that's just a special dude because I know people aren't going to rally like that <laughs> when I'm gone. They're not, I promise you. <laughs> and, and, and it speaks to who Jeff was. I mean, you said something earlier just about like you were competitors, right? But like the coolest people that you can find on a beat are people that are highly competitive, almost cutthroat competitive, but know how to compartmentalize it, right? And, and, and you can still be friendly and you can still like, not only be friendly, but be friends, right? I think in my time in Minnesota, very short time there, you know, I was competing against Jeremy Fowler at the time who was at the Pioneer Press up in St. Paul and I was at the Star Tribune in Minneapolis. And man, that first year, when you go from the college basketball beat to the NFL beat, you have no sources that cross over, none, none. right? And so, so I was getting my ass beat that first season, right? Like just killed, right? It's, it's a sink or swim situation. And, you know, Jeremy would kick my ass. Tom Palacero was on the beat at the time. He's kicking my ass. You talk about like a moment where you look in the mirror and you're like, shit, am I cut out for this? Like, I don't know if I'm going to survive this season with the way I'm getting beat, but then to be able to go out to dinner with Jeremy and just talk and like hang out and do those things. I always valued that because it's like, listen, like we can put this aside. Like we're both working for the same thing. And by the way, we're covering sports. So let's make sure we keep this competition that we're in in perspective right because this is still just an entertainment hobby for most people in the world and let's not make it seem like we're trying to solve world peace here those are the people that are, that are the most fun to be around and they actually make the grind of a beat so much easier and so much smoother i believe zach called jd the ambassador yeah. <laughs> and it's it's so true that social chair yeah you know he's the guy that that everyone like you felt he went out of his way to make people feel comfortable and welcomed. And welcomed is probably even a better word uh, when you're talking about him. And it's it's been that way like like the whole time. Like he's he was a a real bright light, and I was overwhelmed by what you're talking about. The way that people they understood how tragic this story was. Yeah. That you have this man who loved this woman and he has to watch her die. Their child has to watch her die. Then the child has to watch his father die. And seeing how Chicago and, and the nation, I mean, it ended up being right. like kind of a national thing, rallied yeah. around him is testament to who that guy was. Yes. And it... I, I got to tell you, man, you know, these last two years have been super dark, like super dark. Yes, man. And you have this moment where a, a bright light is kind of snuffed out. And there was something that was so hopeful about the way people responded that I, I had kind of been in this place of it seems that empathy is just completely out the window for everybody. And I saw it kind of reignite because of him like because of what people wanted to do to show their affection for him and they wanted to by proxy take care of all of us that were feeling his loss and at, at, at maybe at a, at a different degree than just the people who listened to JD or read JD's work I was amazed and overwhelmed by the kindness and empathy that we saw in an era where it felt like none of that was ever going to be available again. Yeah. How do we bottle that up and get that to come out more frequently? I would love to do it. Can I tell you one story about Jeff from week one of this Please. year? That I, 
to me, it's, it's, this is a snapshot to me of who, who Jeff was to his core. We're going, we, we talked about him being the social chair. He used to set up dinners for 10, 12, 14. He, he'd have a group of eight and he'd make the reservation for 12 just in case four more people wanted to join him, right? That, that was him. He wanted everyone to be included. He wanted everyone to come along. So week one comes and we're going to LA. And my dad had just been diagnosed with cancer three, four weeks earlier. And Jeff was, in my opinion, at that time, kicking cancer's ass, right? Killing it with a positive spirit. You would look at him. You wouldn't know anything was wrong with him. He had that energy, that belief, everything that you needed. And I said, he was flying in later into LA. I said, hey, listen, I'm making the dinner reservation tonight and I'm making it for two because I just want to have a conversation, right? I just want to have friendship, right? Like I just need this right now. I need you to help me kind of steer through this, this cancer battle that we're fighting with my dad because you've been through this, right? With Caitlin and now yourself and, and you, you've attacked this with the spirit. He's like, no problem. You just can't tell anybody else that we're doing it because I don't want anyone to feel like I left them out for dinner here. I said, no problem. We, we got it. So I make a reservation to Manhattan Beach. Jeff's flight gets delayed by like an hour and a half, then two hours, then two and a half hours. He's texting me like, still haven't taken off from O'Hare. And I'm like, dude, if you want to just bag it, I totally get it. Like get in, land, go to bed. I'll see you tomorrow at SoFi, right? Whatever it is. He gets in, he says, we're still doing this. I got it. I'm just going to drop my bag at the hotel, roll over. You got to remember there's a two hour time change. So we're sitting down at dinner in Manhattan Beach at 9 p.m. Pacific time. It's 11 o'clock Chicago time. He's exhausted, rolls up. You know, we order the wine that Jeff always wanted to drink, right? We're, we're drinking the wine. And we just sat there for two hours talking, right? Like we talked about, you know, my dad's battle, his battle, youth baseball, stupid college stories, which can't be shared on this podcast or any other <laughs> one, right? Like, it was just one of those nights where it was like the connection was there. And I just like, I knew it when I took my Uber back to the hotel that night and I knew it more so in Jeff's final days where you're just like, that's just a special kind of dude. Right. And to your point, like just drops everything he's doing because he could hear kind of the need in my voice. And I feel embarrassed sharing this because it's like, Jeff is like at that point, eight months into a battle with colon cancer that's spread to his liver. And I'm asking him to help boost me up. Right. right. Because I'm so confident that he's got his thing taken care of because that's the kind of confidence he exuded. And it's just, I mean, to me, from that's just my experience, but it tells you everything about who that dude was and how selfless and unselfish and caring the guy was. And that's why you get an outpouring. And again, it ain't going to happen when I go. People aren't going to feel that way. And maybe I can work on it in the years to come so that more people feel that way, but it ain't going to be the way that, that they did. I told my wife, I said, I know you saw that GoFundMe. For, for Parker, like, don't get, don't get any ideas because they're going to be filling that trough up for me. I, I keep finding myself going, like, I, I look at, I look at death a little bit differently. Like now that I'm older and seeing one of your friends pass away is really, yeah, really hard. And I, I kind of look at it as, okay, the challenge becomes, can you take a little bit of what you learned from that person? And added to who you are. And, and I think that's the challenge to be more engaging and inviting like JD was to have a, a level of, no, 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 everyone, everyone come be a part of this. Let's all hang out. And, and I, I feel like that's, that's how I am working through the grief is by saying he would want us to all do better. And I'm glad. And I it, I had a, a really cool moment with Sylvie um, 
you know, and Sylvie and I know each other. I wouldn't say that we're friends. I would say that we are respected colleagues. Like, that's kind of how, and I've always kind of felt like I've been compared to Sylvie, like, a lot throughout my career. Like, I've kind of been chasing his career in, while figuring out my career. And that list that Jeff Agris uh, put out, came out, and I did a whole pod about everyone on the list, like what I like about everyone on the list. And Sylvie listened, and he hit me up, and he's like, man, it really sucks that we haven't become closer. And I'm like, guess what? There's still time. Like, there's, there's still time. And I know that my reaction to it is very much in the spirit of that's what JD would have done. Like, he would, he would make it a point to get to know some of the people that he didn't know and try to be better. Like, it's, it's a really, really good template to try and follow. Yeah, there's no question that that, that quality, the, the willingness to, to kind of welcome everyone in and to get to know more about them was one. And the other one for me is just his ability to, to compartmentalize the BS of, of the work situation from real life, right? Like, I struggle with that a lot. A lot of us who live this profession struggle with that. It can be hard to just turn off when you go home. And Jeff would always come to my cubicle at Alice Hall and be like, listen, like, you know, he'd know the days that I was fuming at a player or a PR or somebody else, right? And he'd be like, dude, none of this matters. Like, go home, like, go play catch in the yard with your son. Like, you know, and just that ability to, to flip that switch, to leave that, that door at Alice Hall and close it and just be like, you know, like, this doesn't define who we are in life, right? Like, it's, it's this is just a part of who we are, right? And it gives us a, a platform and opportunity, but make sure that you're present in the life that matters, right? And I've tried to think about that a lot the last, you know, really seven or eight weeks, just to, to do that more and to do it better because it's not easy. I want to go back to your career for a second. Yeah. And I want to talk to you about the deep dives that you yeah. do. I'm all, I love when you give me a heads up. I love when I know something that you've been working on is coming because I want to sink my teeth into it. And I've been trying to explain to people on the air. Uh, I want journalism, independent journalism to continue to thrive. And I, I remember I said on the air, I said, look, if you're a Bears fan, like, I don't know what else you care about news-wise, but I know you listen to the score. Are you a Bears fan? Yeah. Then guess what? Your subscription to the Tribune is worth it just for the Bears stuff. Like, just because you're getting Colleen and Dan and Bigsy, like, right there, whatever it is that you, the, the deal that the Tribune has, it is worth it. It's worth it. And I was so happy, like, a couple people hit me up, like, a few weeks later, and they were like, you were right. Like, I wasn't getting this coverage, and now I'm getting it. And it doesn't, I, I get the rest of the paper, too, and the rest of the paper's great. But as a Bears fan, how can I not have all this stuff some of the work that you've done you and rich have done you've done independently team tribune has done on the bears takes a lot to to get the sourcing right to get it through editorial to then present it and and get it to people when you get done with something that big like what you did on the draft or or the the search for the the new general manager, the inner workings of Hallis Hall with ownership. How do you get to the place to make these pitches and then follow the pitches through to, to get that final product? It's a complex answer because it's a it's a web, right? Like it's a very 
sophisticated web of, of things that go there. I'll tell you a story that's not Bears related, but the, the piece I did on the 25th anniversary of James Jordan's murder back in 2018, no story I've worked on required more attention to detail than that one. I mean, literally a week straight in meetings going word by word to make sure that word choices weren't putting us in a compromising position, whether accuracy wise or, you know, legally, right? Like you got to make sure that, that, and this is what an experience that was to just be like, man, we really have to go every single word of every sentence in here and make sure that is air tight, right? Like, and if you were able to do that with every story you did, it would be a whole different world out there right now, right? Like we both know how things have changed in the last 10, 15 years and how misinformation flows, but that was an experience of like, okay, you're taking, you're dissecting every sentence for how do we know this and, 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 how do we make sure we know this, right? Like, and, and making sure that it was that airtight. To your other question about making some of these pitches, sometimes it's just a, a matter of, like I had an editor when I was working in North Carolina where we talked about having a marker board and the marker board always had four like really big stories that you wanted to work on. And you could be working on them simultaneously, maybe two at a time, three at a time, but these are the, the big ones, right? Like these are the, the deep dives that you're gonna go after. And within that, you've got to be able to, to take them apart, right? And see the chapters, right? That's kind of how I refer to them now is like, what are the sections and how are we going to dive into them? And how are we going to go about getting the right sources for them? And how are we going to go about making sure we connect to those sources? And then at the end, trying to narrow it down. The best stories like those come with a, a editorial oversight that is second to none. The sad part of our current existence, and I'll tell you a story here on the air that, that'll illuminate some things for some people, is how much the manpower of the Chicago Tribune has been reduced due to many factors, not the least of which is the ownership that took over last year. I saw Dan McGrath. I don't know. Do you know Dan McGrath at all? Former, former sports editor of the Chicago Tribune. He came out to training camp with the Leo football team this summer, and he was saying, hey, how are things going over there? You know, just want to, want to know what the temperature is over there. I said, I want to ask you a question. I said, at the peak, when you were the sports editor of the Chicago Tribune, at the peak, what was the, the highest number of people that were under your oversight in the sports department of the Chicago Tribune? He said, I'll be thought for a minute. And Dan was probably, I, I don't know his exact years, but probably early 90s to early 2000s, probably. That is correct, that yeah. And he, he said, he said 64. He said, I, I remember that number vividly. We, he said 64. We had 60, but that, that's writers, editors, desk people, right? You got to remember, we used to cover colleges. You have a Northwestern beat writer, an Illinois beat writer, a Notre Dame beat writer, you know, a, a big 10 writer who oversaw the, all those things. I said, you, Dan, you know how many people we have in the sports department now? This is writers, editors, and, and desk people. He said, no, I'll, I'll, I'll give you that guess. What, what do you think the number is now? Okay, so it was 64 when McGrath left, and that was probably what? what? 64, it was probably less than that when he left. You're right, so at the at, peak. At its peak, yeah. At, okay, so that's probably like 2003, 2004, right? Okay, now 64, my guess is 25. 12. Oh, right? Like, feel that in your soul when you, when you make that noise, that... 12 and Dan, 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 like looked at me and he said, we used to have 12 on the NBA finals and he wasn't joking, right? Like you'd have, you'd have, you know, nine writers in an NBA finals game. You, somebody would just be doing a Charles Barkley story that night, right? Like in 93 or whatever it was wow. uh, in 97, a, a jazz 
12 people, right? Like left in the sports department. So what happens, Lawrence, the reason I bring that up is because when you reduce the manpower that much, you reduce the, the amount that it takes for the dam to break, right? And so now you're just, you're trying to, to figure out where to go. And so the opportunities and the oversight and the input and the ability to do those things at the level that they deserve is reduced. Now you have to get creative. Now you have to get uh, determined. Now you have to be persistent. You have to work with the limitations you've got and figure out how to put this puzzle together. It's just much more difficult than it used to be. And I think that's a, a, a sad state for the rest of the world in every topic you're talking about, not just sports, but when you, when you thin it out that much, you lose the ability to tell those deeper stories that I think are, are, are what the fabric of what we do is all about. Man, I really appreciate you giving me this much time. I know you got other stuff that you got going on. I feel like there should be a part two or maybe even a part three <laughs> of, of this. Sorry to ramble. <laughs> Dude, no, you kidding me? I'm, you're talking to king of the ramblers. Um, But I, I thank you for this, man. You're you're someone who I I love your stuff. Like I love, like I I know what I'm getting when I read a Dan Weeder piece in the Tribune, and it's it is. You'll understand when I say this hyphenated word. You're great at agenda setting, for what it is that we do. You don't have an agenda, but you are setting the agenda for what's important to talk about with the Bears. What are things to keep in mind? And, I value that. I I really love that the beat itself, the Bears beat, I've always revered it. I've always felt that the Bears beat is the city hall of sports in Chicago. And I think that everyone that's up there is really smart and focused. And the questions, like the rat-a-tat-tat that was going on with the questions of George in the, the season ender was just spectacular. Like really, really great journalism. I I think you're one of the best journalists that that I've seen. And I really appreciate you giving some time to the podcast, kind of share the process of it, because I think it's important to to learn from really good journalists how they do their job. So I'm going to reciprocate that praise in one second, because this is meaningful to me as well. But I will say that, that like when I'm on a beat, I try to treat it like a classroom. And I've told coaches this in the earliest days that I, I work with them, like, this is a classroom for me here. I want to learn from you because you're going to be able to teach me something about what you do and what the inner workings of your team or your program are. And, and I, I want you to understand that everything I ask you comes from a place of curiosity and a place of, of trying to absorb what we do here. Right. So, so please just understand where I'm coming from at the outset. Usually that works. It's helpful in some regards. I want to say to you that like, I, I, I take the art of interviewing very seriously. And I consider you to be one of the best questions askers in our market. And that's no small compliment because there Thank is, you. A, a, you know, and, I, and I, I know you take a similar level of pride in learning about what it is that makes a good interview. And, and, and so I, you're one of the people I listen to. People ask me all the time, you know, who are some of the people you model interviewing after? I said in my younger days, Tim Russell was a guy. Bob Costas was a guy. Like guys that you could really just like, you're like, oh man, they're, they're just having a conversation here and they're getting somewhere, right? And you do that so smoothly and so routinely that it helps me, right? Like I, I listen and try to figure out, okay, how's Lawrence doing this? Why is the river flowing the way it's flowing today? And there are things I take from that. So I just wanted to reciprocate that because I, when you reached out to me to do this, I said, I, I already know the questions are gonna be good because <laughs> like, you know what you're doing in this regard, right? Like, and so it's fun. It's fun to have these conversations and it, they don't happen if it's you know a clunky, 
list of questions, right? Like, tell me your career achievements. <laughs> you know? Man, I felt I felt so under the gun when the bear said you can have poles and Eberflus, but you only got them for ten minutes. And I'm like, right. ah, you can't. It's hard to establish rapport yeah. in in ten minutes. Like maybe twenty, you can do it, but in ten. And so I, I found myself, I was talking with my EP, Herbie, about it. I'm like, okay, this is, this is more of a utilitarian interview that I have to do. And I actually think we got somewhere, and I thought Eberflus was much better in the breakout sessions with you guys or with the, the one-on-one with me. He was much better than what he was in the press conference. But it's a challenge. It's definitely a challenge. You want to like, you wanna learn about people and <laughs> – it, it, it doesn't really give you a chance to do it, but I hope that the experience was good. I don't know if you heard the polls interview, but I implored him to be more visible than his predecessor. And I don't know if that got through. I'm like, look, man, people want to hear from you. Like they, right. they want to know what's going on with this team. And they, and quite honestly, they want to buy into the vision. The, the fans right, right. want to buy into your vision, and they want to see if you are reaching some of those markers. It's a, trying to explain that to, to the, the powers that be can be uh, daunting, but I, I still I mean, think it was worth it. If you're confident in what you do, you should have no hesitation to want to share what you do. Right. And that's that's what I don't understand sometimes about the, the building walls instead of bridges. Right. In, in, in these rooms, if you're confident in what you do, share it share it. It's going to work, right? Like, or it's not. And, 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 but at least you were confident and, but share it. Like, let us understand how you came to decisions or philosophies or whatnot. It's going to be more illuminating for everybody. There are a lot of great lessons in this episode and I'm really, really happy. You hear me at the end talking about it. I, I'm glad that I got a chance to talk with Dan about JD. And the reason that I was really happy that we got to talk about JD is that, and I made mention of it while we were discussing it, JD was my travel partner for a really long time. And then he became those guys' travel partner. And what they did for him, both emotionally and physically at times, as someone who was a friend of JD's, was, in, was greatly appreciated. Those guys and girls. I don't want to leave like Colleen Kane out, Peggy while she was still on the beat, like all of that. I don't want to leave anyone out. They did a great job of taking care of him. And all of us that knew him even a little bit were broken by his death. So there's a little element of therapy in it for me. I hope that Dan felt the same way that we could talk about someone that we genuinely loved and share stories about that person. I, I love that. I think that my idea about how we grieve, or I shouldn't say we, I should say me, how I grieve something is now I'm starting to seek out, tell me the stories. Try to keep that person's memory alive by stories and deeds you try to add a little bit of in jd's case him being the ambassador and him being the person that wants to kind of bring everybody together i think that's a strong way to be so i was happy that that dan was 
was in a good enough place that he could talk about some of the things that made JD special too. I also really dig the way Dan does his thing. I appreciate how dogged he is on covering the Bears. He takes it he takes it seriously, but not himself seriously. And that's that's the approach. That's a big job. I, I equate covering the Bears to covering City Hall and seeing that there are a bunch of reporters now that look at it similarly, that they want to give you the best information that they can is really terrific. And and the the book writing process is is dope. And hearing what it takes to put a book together. I'm going to have Chris Herring on at some point, and we're going to talk about that in depth. But it's inspiring to hear people work at that level. So do me a favor. If you haven't gotten a subscription to the Chicago Tribune, you should. If If you're only a Bears fan, you should have a subscription to the Tribune because it allows you to be able to read what Dan's writing, what Colleen is writing, what Biggs is writing, and you want that as much as you want what we do on the score or anyone that's working on TV. It just gives you a nice, clean mosaic. So go get your Tribune subscription. Big thanks to Dan for coming through. I love when there's someone that I want to get on the podcast and I'm like, man, it's going to be awesome. And then it's incredibly awesome and that's what it was with Dan I'm, I'm glad that he was available and I hope that I get a chance to talk with him on the podcast again thanks so much for your support go listen to back episodes of House of L just scroll through man I guarantee you there's going to be something that you want to hear and the Sports Adjacent podcast I'm on the last episode of Sports Adjacent it's insane you're going to love it I will talk to you next time You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.